get ready to strap in for another exciting episode of No Driving Gloves, where Derek, John, and Will will use over 75 years combined industry knowledge to bring you a bare-knuckled review on the collector car hobby. Let's get rolling. Welcome, everybody. It's another episode of No Driving Gloves. We broke our streak I talked about last week. There's just two of us tonight, me and Derek, um, as we've alluded to, uh, Will's on recording night, on his way to Arizona, to Barrett-Jackson, to say goodbye to the dart uh, and maybe help encourage a couple more dollars to come its way. I think he's probably excited to build Willie another car. So he's on his way, but of course, by the time you're hearing this, you should have already checked Barrett-Jackson and seen how much money his work brought, which you can buy 16,000 man-hours for five hours after the build, or five years after the build. How's your week been going, Derek? Uh, you know, it's going pretty good. Uh, work is going uh, good. We're uh, well into renovations of some of the uh, exhibit spaces. And uh, unfortunately, as as our listeners know from the last episode, and at least as of recording this evening, the federal government has still not reopened, so there is still no... Uh, NASA portion of the uh, NASA exhibit we're attempting to do at the uh, Corvette Museum, but you can come see some astronaut Corvettes while you're there. So uh, things are good and bad, but I'm sure once the government reopens, it'll all be good from there on out. Do you want me to send a couple photos from when I restore or did or from my restoration work on the Saturn V in Huntsville? You can blow those up. I've got some with my cute little mug and my wonderful <laughs> hairstyles. Uh, I think I'm good, actually. I've got I've got I've got other stuff. I'm good. Okay, yeah. thank you. <laughs> Nothing exciting for me this week. Still plugging away at finishing up that one car. My goal's February first. We should at least have it all assembled and be ready to ma- see if it makes smoke, as they s- kind of say. Otherwise, it's just been, you know, I guess an easy January. My anniversary date at work is the day the podcast releases, so it's use it or lose it vacation. So I've been doing a lot of uh, vacation time, and unfortunately, I'm going to say this, and I'm probably get slapped by the girlfriend, but a lot of uh, honey-do list things I've been trying to accomplish. i got a few more to do this weekend. and But after the 21st, it'll be hard at it, at least uh, 40 hours a week or so at the good old museum. Yeah, but you know the honey-do list never stops anyway. Yeah, I know. It's I, I love the meme, and it's a perfect example of me. I'll get to it. You don't need to remind me every two or three years. There you go. <laughs> so, as we alluded to, I guess directly told you in the last podcast and mentioned on Facebook and a few other Facebook groups, we're being joined by, and unfortunately... You think in all the show prep we actually did for this guest, I would actually know the correct correct pronunciation of his last name and his official job title. But instead, I'll just go ahead and let Chris introduce himself a little bit. And he's with uh, Evans Waterless Coolant. And we thought it'd be great to have them on the show. He stopped by my place of employment, I don't know, six months, a year ago, and actually took a good brunt of my... I guess, abuse and saying, hey, I like your product, but I don't understand it. We've looked at it and we've had some, you know, some questions. And I thought it might be a great idea to bring him on here and get some of those questions answered because I think he's got a pretty good product. It's just nobody understands it. Or you you get questions and it doesn't quite 
do exactly what the traditional coolants do. That's why we have them tonight. We've got some questions. We're going to go over the product. They're not paying. This isn't a paid advertisement or anything, so we can kind of say whatever we want to them. <laughs> Just worry about the ensuing lawsuit, I guess. But Chris, can you go ahead and fill us in briefly on you and uh, just a couple of quick things, and then we'll go with some questions and we'll get a, learn a little about you and uh, Evans. Sure, sure. Sounds good. So the pronunciation of the last name is Sebus, Slovakian, in case you're wondering. <laughs> Everyone just calls me Seabass. Whatever you prefer is fine by me. So my job title with Evans, I was hired on as a technical sales specialist slash like ambassador. And I, I say ambassador, that's more for like the power sports side of the business because I do a lot of dirt bike racing, uh, very active in that role in all the local series. I know a ton of people, uh, you know, the whole social media stuff and promoting the product and, and whatnot. I also have a decently extensive car background as well and, and being in the automotive industry for many years and whatnot. So, so I guess officially my, my title is the technical sales specialist. And my job is just to get out, hit the streets, visit dealers, shops, restoration places, car collectors, museums, you name it. Just try to pretty much help educate people, I like to say, on the product. So you get paid to do what most of us would really like. You get you get to pick what car collection you want to go see, have the company pay for the ticket, <laughs> fly out there and see if they'll <laughs> let you in the door, right? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. In, in most cases, yeah, I usually get in the door, so which is nice, but I have to come back with some kind of results to my boss. Otherwise, I'm going to say, hey, no more. <laughs> so, but it works out good. It, it's a really awesome job, I have to say. It's, you know, I'm pretty fortunate in the fact that I get to do something I love every day, get to meet new people every day, also see the same people uh, on a regular basis, and, you know, do follow up calls with a lot of my power sports dealers. And we just talk racing and bikes and, you know, what happened at, at this event or that event. And, and then just the cars that I get to see is just, some of these things are just incredible. And, you know, it's stuff that I would normally never get to see in a, in a regular day. So it's just pretty cool. Well, I know before the show, you and I were chatting and you had mentioned coming across the storage facility and learning that a uh, renowned car collector, actually, that's, quote, his hiding place for his collection. <laughs> yeah. And, and, yeah. And you're doing the legwork to try to get in the front door or at least a, a side door there, so. Yeah, the side, even that would be great. Even a window at this point. <laughs> um, it was actually funny. Um, I found a picture of the inside of the place. It looks beautiful. And I sent it to my sales director. And he goes, oh, he goes, how'd you get in? I said, well, I broke in through the window. And he goes, what? Are you kidding? I said, yeah, but I'll, I'll text you when I get out of here. So I'll, uh, give me about an hour or so. <laughs> you know, he just started laughing. He, he's a great guy. But sometimes it just gets, he takes it almost seriously. And you're like, dude, relax. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, I would never break into the place. <laughs> I, you know, I broke in, I left my, my card and, and a flyer and took off. Hopefully they call me back. Right. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see if we can get in this one. But, you know, as you and I were talking about the, the car collector side of things, it's this just crazy, like underground market of just collectors and man some of the cars these people have and the quantities of cars these people have it's just like holy cow it's it's just 
breathtaking. It's amazing that that these things are out there and hidden. I don't know how we come across them sometimes. It's just, you know, one person leads you to the next person, to the next, and it's, it's really cool. It's hard to believe that one person has, you know, 50 or 100 or, you know, Ugh. you know, 200 cars, and they're just tucked away. And like I said, at one point, my car, my personal car collection got to about nine cars, and managing that was a nightmare. And yeah. you just you just sit there and go, how how do they do it? And you know, you got to have staff and keep them running. And well, that's that's the answer, John. Is see, we just have had the wrong careers all our life, and you know, these people have had the careers where they can hire the staff and build the buildings and everything to house it safely. I think you and I both know somebody like that. <laughs> Diff- different people. <laughs> Actually, we know some of the same people with that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Chris had mentioned that earlier uh, that it was the it's a lot of networking. And, of course, that's how Derek and I, you know, kind of we met each other. And I think I've used Derek's networking a little bit more than Derek's used mine. We've always alluded to, you know, how our museum helped him out at previous jobs and with previous restorations. And, you know, Derek's helped me make some contacts and get some questions answered that I need to. And that leads into meeting somebody new. And, you know, that's another reason we're having you on tonight, Chris, is it's a product Derek's had some questions about. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, and we'll say on a personal level, because, you know, we try to keep our employers out of this. And by no means does this mean that, Derek's employer or my employer or Will Shop or anybody uses your product. Like I said, it's not a paid sponsorship or anything. It's just us asking the questions that we think our listeners wanted to get a- answered and maybe sure. opening up some doors for you guys through, you know, some of our listeners. We'll see how how it goes, you know. I've got a lot of questions from a couple of the Facebook groups that are a lot of car restorers. And it's, you know, you do point out a side of your business that I never think about. And that's the uh, power sports, you know, the motorcycles and the UTVs and things like that. And I, for some reason, that that's not a hobby. I don't hunt. I don't fish. I never think anything about that. But that's a major portion of Evans, is it not? Yeah, oh, it, it, tremendously. You know, it's just getting going. We put together the power sports side of things, uh, I want to say back in like 2012-ish. You know, there's there's such a big potential in that market. One, the product works extremely well in those machines, dirt bikes and, and quads and UTVs, snowmobiles even. They all tend to overheat depending on conditions. You know, if it's muddy out, you're racing or slow conditions, but it's like really gnarly, rocky, rooty areas, the bikes will tend to overheat and run hot. The coolant really eliminates that factor. It just works good in those applications. And again, like I mentioned to you beforehand, it's a much easier sell. It's You're talking typically a half-gallon bottle of coolant. It costs them $30. It's a quick, easy conversion. They're done. They're happy. And they don't really have to worry about it any longer. So, I mean, we haven't even, we've only hit the the tip of the iceberg in power sports. And it's just growing and growing and growing each year. It's, it's kind of hard. It's myself and, and one other person, our power sports director, that are really hands-on with it. And it's just so overwhelming for just two people to keep up with. And I'm only really primarily in the Northeast. I do travel the U.S. when it's necessary or if I find something that, you know, I need to get out to do or, or see and make visits, but 
you know, just there's so many dealerships. There's so many just individuals. There's so many series, uh, racers, just your weekend warriors. There's there's so much to it. And just last year alone, it's kind of kind of creepy. But, you know, I opened up my, my Gmail account uh, maybe last week or the week before, and it shows Google tracks you and where you go. And it showed me my, my year status for 2018. And it's kind of like, well, this is cool, but kind of creepy at the same time. You, <laughs> it knows everywhere I'm at. So, but, you know, I saw 515 power sports dealers last year uh, in 305 cities. So it's like, holy cow, there's, there's just so many out there. It's just insane. And, and there's more, there's thousands of them. So that, it's just a huge potential for us in power sports. Like I say, it's a hobby I don't even think about. And, you know, you walk through, you've been through to the museum and walk through it. While we got 100 cars, there's 1,600 motorcycles. So, <laughs> yeah, I know. I just, you just, and, and, and I forget about them. It's kind, kind of weird, a little bit tunnel vision there. <laughs> it's crazy. It, I remember you saying it's like label is a car museum, but everybody knows you as a motorcycle museum. Just probably because it's so overwhelming with all those bikes and you're just like, holy cow. I mean, you probably saw my face when I first walked in there and I was just like in awe, just saying, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> it's like the old saying, you can't see the forest through through the trees, but, you know, you forget there's some, you know, bushes and some really cool fo- uh, foliage and stuff in, in the forest <laughs> and everybody's talking about the trees. Yeah, <laughs> I know it. So, D-Rock, do we want to jump in and start asking Chris some questions about? Yeah, I mean, we we certainly can. I mean, I'm not, <clears throat> obviously, neither one of us are on the uh, the outdoor power sports side of things. We're, we're definitely on the uh, collector car side of the world, which is probably a little different. And I guess that's, that would be maybe one of my first questions or maybe the first part of the discussion is, you know, in, in doing some of the the reading that I have done in the past, trying to read up again on it now for the podcast tonight, you know, you guys have quite a few different products, you know, so and that's, I'm, I'm sitting here at the same time, kind of looking at a, a couple different ones. And, you know, I guess maybe just for the listeners, uh, you know, just kind of which products you have and and what they're used for probably for this podcast more so focusing product that would be used for the collector car hobby if you're if you're on our website or or wherever viewing our products uh if you're into cars even light duty trucks that kind of applications you're going to see the high performance coolant which is the uh the green label coolant there that's really going to be what you use for your collector cars, um, you know, muscle cars, drag racing. Again, you could use them in light duty trucks, even with diesels, everything like that there. We do have other coolants that you'll see on there. Uh, you'll see the heavy duty. That's something that we use for like a class A truck, something with a wet sleeve liner. Most people don't really relate to that one with with the questions, but we, it does, does come through every now and again. You'll see our half gallon bottles of the Power Sports on there, track water, NPG. That's all stuff that you typically use for your your off road market, dirt bikes, ATV, UTV, snowmobiles, stuff like that. And then you'll also see our product, the prep fluid, and the prep fluid is used for all applications, which is a way that you use to flush the system, which we can cover in some of the questions probably I'm sure people have for how to convert 
the car or, or whatever machine that you have that prep fluids, the fluid that you need in order to do the process. That The high performance is really what you guys are going to focus on the most for, for your application. And just from even the research I did back in, <clears throat> so although I'm at the Corvette Museum now, and of course, you know, we, we don't usually tie it to the places we work um, specifically, but in, in this case, I have done research on a lot of different coolants that are out there, different, just different products, things like that. I actually started my career conservation at Henry Ford Museum, objects conservation specifically focused on vehicles. And yeah, I know even from my research back then, specifically in operating early vehicles, pre-water pump, pre-pressurized systems, uh, you know, Evans, even you guys, you guys even talk about it a little bit where you, you don't necessarily recommend that it be used because it does not flow in the way that your cooling product needs to, to actually do what it's doing. So I kind of, from that, I, I already understand that Evans isn't necessarily the best option. And and you guys pretty much admit, admit to that for very early automobiles. You know, for me personally, I don't have much hands-on experience with those kind of cars, but there's, there's a few guys in our tech department that do. It, it's just, it's one of those applications. Um, it could work, but he just doesn't like to say that it's, it's going to work. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like you said, with uh, the pressurized systems and whatnot. I, I, I'm assuming you're probably talking about the, the siphon systems and whatnot. Thermosiphon system. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And that, you know, I already yeah, kind of already kind of understand from, from the background I have that, you know, that you guys, you know, like I say, it's, it's a product that although it, it probably works and it, it may work, it's not really, you guys aren't out there saying, yeah, put it in your car because it's going to be better for it. Because of course, the way it's formulated without water, you know, it has a little harder time doing the thermosiphon process. Correct. Relies on yeah, exactly. the the hot coolant going up, going through the radiator, cooling down and coming back through. You know, so so that I can understand. You know, and I know I do work even at Henry Ford Museum when I was there, when I every job I've had uh up until the Corvette Museum has involved early cars all the way through modern vehicles. So, you know, also have done research into using this in in modern vehicles. And obviously, from the work side of things, uh, we don't museums don't tend to operate their vehicles as much as private collectors. You know, we don't take them out on a, a daily basis and do a 150 mile tour in a day. So we have a little bit different yeah. process. However, you know, I do also collect antique cars. Uh, you know, I have teens era through the 60s. I mean, between my dad and I, you know, we've got teens to the 1970s. You know, we look at a little bit of everything and and what we're using product-wise in those vehicles. I don't want to get too far into my questions right away because I have some questions on long-term storage for from the museum side, um, which gets a little more into the chemistry of, of the product. I know there are concerns out there because obviously... Uh, Evans is, and and as I say, you guys talk about it on your your website and in all of your literature. The cooling system will run hotter, and I know I've I've heard comments from guys and and read comments from guys talking about the fact that your actual cylinder heads are going to get hotter, things like that. So you know, I'm I'm wondering what you guys kind of Evans approach to that. Let me interrupt real quick and let's step back a little bit. 
give us a quick overview of what Evans is. I mean, we're talking Evelyn's waterless coolant. Did we ever tell the <laughs> Probably uninitiated not. listener what your um, product is and what, what we're talking so about? So it, it's an engine coolant, <laughs> uh, you know, and the one thing that tricks most people, they say waterless, well, what is it then? I mean, I got it today when I was visiting a, a restoration shop t- today. He says, well, if it's waterless, what is it? Is it a, a gel? Is it a powder? And it's like, well, no, it's still a coolant. It's still a liquid form. It's just a blend of glycols with uh, our chemical additives that just allow it to work without water. What I like to tell people is it, it kind of overcomes water's limitations. You have your the lower boiling points, the vapor pressure, uh, corrosion protection, electrolysis, you know, really helps eliminate all those factors. I, again, I like to say water's limitation. So really, it's just still still a coolant, just a blend of glycols. And uh, it, it's you run it straight. You don't mix it with anything. Something you have to flush the system with. And like I said, you just run it straight. And it kind of helps solve some of those issues that you might be having with any boil over or anything like that. It's a replacement for antifreeze, basically, that helps has a long, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm trying to summarize it a little bit, has a little bit longer life expectancy. It does. It it certainly does. In most cases, it'll last the life of an engine. Uh, many car collectors, car museums, these guys will have, you know, I'm just going to throw it out there, but Jay Leno's been using this stuff for over 15 years and a lot of his cars. It, de- it does depend on the application. You know, if, if you're using it in uh, a big truck that's hauling trailers all day long, some guys drag racing with it, you know, it's going to shorten the lifespan a little bit. I mean, you're talking, you can still probably get five, 10, 15 years out of it or so. In a, in a museum standpoint or car collector or just your, even your everyday driver, it's going to last the life of an engine. So it, basically for most of us, because I think I read once that when somebody says it's a lifetime product, they mean 100,000 miles. I, th- I think that's the standard I read. Uh, you know, BMW tells you their transmission fluid is designed for the life of the car. They mean 100,000 miles, yeah. things like that. <laughs> Google it. You'll find out what that exact number is. But there's an industry norm on that. So for museum applications, for the, the general collector who's never going to go out and drive their 55 Chevy, you know, 100,000 miles, or you're not going to go out and drive your Model A, you know, 100,000 miles normally. Right. <laughs> We get a little weak to eliminate maintenance of the cooling system unless uh, a failure occurs with the equipment. And then, of course, you now antifreeze helps with corrosion, but you guys also tout that you have some corrosion protection and you're a little bit better with the electrolysis and corroding of the, you know, uh, uh, cast iron cylinder block. Yeah, correct. Yeah, Yeah. we have uh, some in in inhibitor package that's uh, added to the coolant that really helps protect against corrosion and all that stuff. So, you know, and obviously without any any water in the system, there's not going to be a risk of, of that happening. Water is, it's a great source for cooling, but it's really water and metal over time just does not mix well. I mean, I'm sure you guys, guys have seen it and the stuff that you work on or, you know, you take apart after something's been sitting for so long and it's like, oh boy, that's not good. You know, all the rust build up inside. And I work with Lotus race cars, obviously. So there's a lot of uh, aluminum mm-hmm. to steel contact in those. So kind of the galvanic <laughs> cor- corrosion, which isn't what you get with water and in a cooling system, yeah. but very similar. And then you guys tout 
uh, lower operating pressures because of something to do with the coolant, which, of course, relieves, quote, stresses on, I guess, hoses and hose clamps and things like that. Yeah, and that's mainly due because uh, to the fact that the, the coolant has such a higher boiling point, which is 375 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. The coolant, because it's not boiling, it has such a higher boiling point, it's always going to stay in a liquid state. It's not building pressure. It's not boiling and building pressure inside your system. There's going to be some pressure. It's still a fluid. You're going to have heat expansion, the water pump, you know, building a little bit of pressure and whatnot. But you're talking probably like three to five pounds of pressure inside that system at the most. So it's not like it's going to build pressure uh, on your hoses or on seals or anything like that. So, yeah, it does, I guess, help in that aspect of it. It relieves stress on those components because it's not building so much pressure. Okay, so far it sounds like a great product, but then we get to how kind of going into Derek's last question that I I cut cut off the answer, (laughs) and it's a question I directly asked you is people say that your temperature gauge runs higher and Okay, I'm used to running, say, 180, 190 degrees or something in, in, in an engine operating temperature. And now you, all of a sudden you're running 220 or 230. I'll be honest, you had a really good explanation when uh, you and I talked about this that I didn't buy into right away, but kind of made sense after a few days. <laughs> Even in the, the literature you sent for our show notes and show prep, you, you know, you guys are saying you, you're going to run 10 or 20 degrees warmer. How can I run my engine at a higher temperature and not risk warping a cylinder head or damaging a copper gasket or seals or anything like that? Best way that I try to explain it to people, everyone's first question to me, whether it's an individual, uh, a parts manager at a dealership or something, they all say, how much cooler is this going to make my engine run? And it's like, well... I don't like to make any claims that it will because I've had many cases where people have come back and said it has run cooler. It hasn't run cooler. It's run the same temperature, uh, but it, or it's actually run a few degrees hotter. And it all varies on the type of system that you have and the components that you have. So the coolant will typically like a more free-flowing system if you want to see lower temperatures. Typically, the guys will go to uh, the bigger radiators with a larger diameter tubing, anything from say like an inch to an inch and a quarter uh, internal tubing, the coolant's really going to flow through that radiator and see lower temps at that point. What happens is like say muscle cars, you know, these guys restore these cars, they build them up, they get a little bit more horsepower, horsepower out of them, right? But they're using a stock radiator application. I'm sure you guys know those radiators back in the day were not exactly the best designs, very restrictive, um, even for regular coolant. But with our stuff, because it's a little bit more restrictive, it, it just doesn't like to flow. So what's happening is because the coolant has such a higher boiling point, right, it's staying in a liquid state all the time, So, which is good because you're going to have that consistent liquid to metal contact inside um, the engine, right? So as long as that coolant can stay in a liquid form, it can still transfer heat from the block, from the head, from the passages. It's when water boils, right? When water boils, it turns to steam. 
at that point, steam loses all of its efficiency to transfer heat. You know, it, it goes down to like 4% of heat transfer capability. So what steam does, everyone says, well, don't you want to see steam? Because steam is an indicator that, you know, I'm overheating and there's an issue. It's like, well, yes, but also no, because once you're seeing steam, you're actually already could potentially be causing damage, right? Because when the steam builds, that's just building vapor pressure. The vapor pressure is pushing the coolant out of those coolant passages, which leaves nothing there to transfer heat from the metals. So the metals spike in temperatures by hundreds of degrees, right? I don't know if that kind of makes sense or not, but with the coolant always being able to stay in the liquid state, it can always transfer heat. And then what's happening is since it's always transferring heat and it's not having a, if it's in a more restrictive system, that's why you're not going to see a little bit lower temperatures. I don't know if that kind of makes sense to you guys or not, if I explain that correctly. <laughs> well, when you explained it to me, you kind of discussed the temperatures of the metal and the coolant. And let me let me ask this and tell me if after, like I said, a couple of days, it kind of made sense to me. When I'm reading my temperature gauge in, in, in a car, mm-hmm. it's actually reading, you know, it's a probe that's stuck into the liquid coolant and is measuring the actual temperature of the coolant, the, the antifreeze coolant. and water, uh, the antifreeze and water mixture, or the Evans coolant that I have in the system, or whatever I've decided to run. What I gathered is if I took an infrared thermometer and I, you know, hit the cylinder head near a water passage or something, or I hit the cylinder head, it actually would be a slightly lower temperature running the Evans product than if I was running typical antifreeze water mixture because the Evans product is so much more efficient at extracting the heat away from the metal. Um, I don't want to say it's more efficient than extracting the heat, only at the temperatures where water can't. You know, Because, I mean, water still... I mean, everyone here even says it, water transfers heat better than any fluid out there until the point where it boils, right? And like I said, that turns to steam. Where our coolant thrives is at that temperature range where water just can't stay in a liquid state and it builds, turns into steam. Ours can still transfer the heat. So remember, I think I talked to you, that was like a few days after. So when I visited you, I said, you know, it's, you have to keep in mind the temperature sensors reading the coolant, right? So if our coolant our coolant doing its job. It's staying liquid. It's pulling the heat out. And because it has such a higher boiling point, you know, it's going to be able to take the brunt of the heat. So it couldn't, it can raise up in, in the temperature, right? And yes, the metals are dissipating the heat properly. So I'm probably not at all points in the engine would it be lower in temperature, but you know, your, your metals could definitely show a different temperature than what the, the actual gauge is reading. So, so I'm kind of sort of wrong, but Maybe there's a point to my statement that's actual fa- actually factual, but we don't have a <laughs> we're, we're not making any diehard claims there. <laughs> okay, I, I, I'm going to ask you one more que- uh, kind of I guess basic question because okay, let's see here. We've done all the sales pitch. We've talked about the product. We know what it is. We know how it's working. How do I put it in the car? What's the procedure for putting it in the car? And then when we're done with that, we're going to get into Derek's questions. We're going to get into the, some of the questions from Facebook and yep. uh, see if we make you squirm a little bit. <laughs> 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 it's 
Sorry, I'm used to that. So uh, the conversion process, it's pretty simple. Obviously, if you have a car that has block drains and you can even get to them or even get them out, that's that's going to be your best way. But obviously, first step, drain the radiator, right? I try to drain all the hoses out, the radiator. I use a, I have this mini handheld blower from Makita. It's uh, like a high volume little leaf blower. And I'll use that to blow all the passages. I'll use it to blow out the radiator through the hoses, even the heater core too. I, I try not to put too much pressure, high pressure air through that because obviously you don't want to damage anything, especially a heater core because you don't have to open up that. <laughs> Why? Why bother? So I blew I blew one up in a Ferrari. <laughs> too much pressure. <laughs> one, so. <laughs> You don't you don't Dope. need one in a Ferrari anyway. Come on. <laughs> I, I ended up with a round heater core when I'm done was done. Uh, I mean and then if like I said, if you can get to the black drains and drain it out, then you're like ninety five percent of the way there. If that's not an option for you, you just you can't do that. Again, try to drain out as much of the coolant that you can and use the prep fluid that we were talking about there. So you're going to fill the car up with the prep fluid. It's a, a very hydroscopic fluid. What it's going to do is be able to absorb all the residual water and coolant that's in the system. And it's also going to be able to get into those areas in the in passages or cavities that you just can't get to, even with the, the high volume air. Um, and it's just going to force it out of those areas. So you're going to run the car with the prep, prep fluid in it. You want it to get hot. You want it to circulate, go through the entire system. Um, again, heater core, everything like that. So, so once you feel that you've done that pretty confidently, then you're going to drain out your prep fluid. Um, same process. Try to blow it out, drain it as best you can out of all your passages, um, everything like that. So once you get the prep fluid out, then you're going to Simply just fill it with our the Evans waterless coolant. You're going to obviously bleed the system, make sure it's set to go. There is a way to test for the water content in this system. We, we have a uh, refractometer that we use that measures the water content in the coolant. You can take a sample of it. There's, there's instructions that come with, with the tool. You know, Some people may already know how to use one, but for those that don't and they do buy it, it, it does come with instructions on how to operate that tool there and show you measure the water in the system you know and if there still is water in the system it's not end of the world I mean, you can contact us you can contact the tech line just kind of state to us how what's the percentage of water in the system and we can tell you how much you got to drain down uh and then add more coolant to it so a, a proper conversion though should have three percent or less water in the system you're not going to really notice anything you know, as far as corrosion goes, or the boiling points, or anything like that. But you know, even five percent, I've gotten away with. But when you start getting into like ten percent water in your system, it'll drastically start to drop the boiling point of the coolant. And then, obviously, the more water in the system, the more risk of any kind of corrosion or anything like that there is. So, I mean, it kind of sounds like a lot. It's a pretty easy process. We have a lot of good videos on our website, tutorials on how to do it as well. Uh, whether it's for a car to even a dirt bike or anything like that. Let me ask a quick question on the prep fluid. So, okay, I've drained out all my typical antifreeze water mixture, mm -hmm. and I'm, I've got a two-gallon capacity system, we'll say. Mm -hmm. Do I, I fill it back with two gallons of prep fluid, run the car, drain it out, or do I? can I get away with putting a gallon in? I, I mean, is, or 
is it fill it with it and I guess I, I'm, I'm I'm trying to be cheap here. You know? No, 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 that makes sense. <laughs> um, so, I mean, if you're just draining the radiator anyways and or not, not draining the block, you're probably, say if you had a three-gallon system, you're probably going to only fill it up with two gallons of prep fluid anyways. Uh, you got to figure there's anywhere from got to be half half a gallon to a full gallon still trapped inside that block anyways so um, that you're going to flush out. You know, in most cases, I just like to do it a two to one. So if you need two gallons of coolant, you'll need one gallon of prep. Pretty straightforward. And a lot of people do ask about the prep fluid. You can reuse it two to three more times. So if you can drain it, capture it, save it, you know, you can use it on another car you have or maybe a buddy's car or or just down the road for something else, another project that you have. So. Well, that was my next question because I'm cheap. Can I read? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, you can. <laughs> Only John. Okay, now <laughs> John gets it from somewhere. <laughs> so, okay, now we know what the 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 product is. We kind of know its um, limitations, what it does, why we want to use it, why you may want to use it, and how to put it in the car and install it. Mm-hmm. Now that we're a little bit in. Derek, do you want to go, or do you want me to grab one of these internet questions I've got queued up here and start with it, and we'll see where that goes from there. So. I'm trying to think of a logical way to do this, John. Uh, <laughs> why don't Why don't we do one of our listener questions? Because we've been talking about our own personal situation, so why don't we get one of our you know listeners' questions in? Okay, since and this would be one Derek has something about his, his actual statement is quote better to have the best sealed system it's a great product but will leak out of it anywhere on early cars so are you more porous or is your viscosity less than or yeah so this is uh something i run into occasionally out there because of the coolant has such a, a low surface tension it's it's almost like um like a, a synthetic oil right that's what i was gonna say is it sounds like a synthetic oil question yeah, exactly. Exactly right. And, um, you know, if it has any kind of imperfection <laughs> in the leak, it's going to find it. And I was actually talking with one of our tech guys today about this. There's an old E-Type Jaguar somebody has, and um, I want to say like 62 or 3 or whatever. And he had a few a few leaks in the car. And it, it wasn't anything he was upset about because... He didn't mind the fact that it leaks because he can fix the leaks, right? They only drive the car maybe once a year, if that. So he's always having to drain the thing down, you know, and then whenever they have an event come in, they got to fill it up. And then they got to, they, they, that particular head gasket uses a copper and asbestos. Um, so it's two, two pieces of copper and asbestos in the middle. And mm-hmm. the machining on those, I guess, is not quite as as fine as what like some of the newer gaskets materials are it really it's almost like a like more coarse like a like a file in a sense so it really bites into the gaskets is what i was understanding and our coolant can typically find its way through that i mean it's not gonna come blowing out of there or like be leaking all over the floor or anything like that but when you're running the car you can smell a little bit of the coolant coming out of the passages and there's also one concern with the water pump seal it's a greasable type seal on there you know, there's just a, a tiny little weep coming through there. And because the coolant has such a low surface tension, it's just going to find its way through those little imperfections. 
it's, it doesn't happen all the time, but it, it certainly can. You know, it's just one thing you kind of have to keep in mind. That leads into the kind of a second half question. And I'll be honest, I read this question. I go, you know, Chris might not know the answer to this one. So I'm going to give you a little bit out if you don't. Don't, but he's specifically addressing Rolls-Royce engines, and uh, they use wet liners and silicone O-rings and that, and that's another portion of his question. But what he wants to know is if your coolant gets through those wet liners and in this E-types thing, say, absorbs through a little bit through that asbestos and gets down into the cylinders, <laughs> what kind of effect do you have on the white metal, the bearings and such um, you know, with with uh, the solutions that are used to create your coolant, is there a corrosion or is there something? If I, if I get some of your Evans in my oil, do I need to get that oil out of the car as fast as I can? Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure on that one there. Um, I mean, I don't see why you'd have to get it out right away. Obviously, it'd be best to get it out if you can as soon as possible. But that one I would probably direct to our tech guy so he he's got a little bit more hands-on experience with that type of car yeah, situation I, I, you know i i know you're more of a sales guy than a tech guy the scientist behind the product and that's yeah. why i wasn't sure you would would know that answer yeah but i thought it was an exceptionally good question because he's at you know his whole question is he wants to know if it uh has ethyl hexonic hexanonic acid also known as ea E-E-A-H, because that's a chemical that is a, because as it's a plasticizer, and with most of these type coolants, they contain that chemical, and it can wreak havoc on silicone. So he was wondering if it would damage the silicone O-rings in that Rolls-Royce. Gotcha. Yeah, that one, again, that's probably, that's over my head. I fell asleep in chemistry class. I don't know about you, but. (laughs) (laughs) And Um, and, well, to to answer the question, I, you know, of course we had Chris send the MSDS sheets. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not a a chemist by trade. I I have a lot of chemistry background. Of course, objects conservation deals a lot with it, but I, I can say that pulling the MSDS sheets, you know, your, your, the product does have two ethyl hexanoic acid in it. Obviously, less than 1% by weight. The more interesting factor in that that I, I actually would like to learn more from your your technical chemist, uh, whoever it is on staff. Actually, that's a, a very interesting question that the listener asked because, of course, if you have a, a water-based coolant, what can happen if you do get that into the, in any way, into the oiling, you know, the, the lubrication system, the actual oil in the engine, the, the water in waterless coolant can become basically superheated within the bearing surfaces. It, it actually literally acts like a, almost like a sandblasting inside of the, uh, the bearing itself. Like if you're, you're in the main bearing and you get that high pressure and the superheated water from the cooling, it will actually micro abrade the bearing surface um, and destroy it over time. So uh, that's, I, I actually find that as a very interesting question from the question from the listener, because it would be interesting to find out if the fact that this doesn't have water in it, does it give you more time you know, right. to get that out of there and not damage your bearings? Right. How? Yeah. If it did, how can we guess how long of a period of time or not? Yeah. I, I, I'll tell you what. Let me interrupt real quick to make sure I heard this right so the listeners hear it right because Derek's asking a question and the micro abrasion 
uh, scenario he, he laid out is utilizing traditional antifreeze and water mixture, correct, Derek? Correct. Yeah, that's what can cause, once that water gets in, uh, that can cause that issue. Yeah, so it would be interesting to find out if Evans, hopefully it never leaks into your your oil. Um, <laughs> you don't want that ever. If it, it would eliminate that risk um, because it doesn't have the water that could get superheated, you know, under pressure and turn into, you know, that, that micro abrasion uh, issue. I just wanted to clarify that because when I started listening, I thought you were saying the Evans product contains something that would do that. And I didn't want to make it sound like that. I wanted to be clear that we were talking about your knowledge is with the antifreeze water mix. Correct. Kind of. Yeah. Well, now I'm going to do some homework tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, Chris, just to forewarn you, some of my questions are chemistry related because I I do have five years of chemistry behind me. And uh, although, as I say, I don't claim to be a chemist, I do have a a good understanding of chemistry. Sure, sure, sure. And and that's not because he just watches certain (laughs) cable television programs with a guy named (laughs) (laughs) Walter. You know, I, I tell you what, though. Who drive? Who drives a cool Pontiac Aztec? <laughs> the the one thing I do have to say is, uh, you know, our our tech support. Those guys are they're phenomenal. They're they're very well rounded, and and they could probably, especially one guy in our department, he could probably answer your question like that. You know, he's just so well rounded in in engines and cooling systems and fluids and all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, and and that's what they're there for. The the people can call our our hotline or they can go right on our website and fire the email right over and you know they'll respond right back you know if if we don't have the answer we'll we'll get you the answer so it's just one of those things you know there's still so many things that even these guys learn on a daily basis too you know it's there's so many applications so many cars so many different types of systems and variables it's like well, you know, I don't, man, it's, it gets you thinking, like, I think I could work with that. But you know what? We got to go back to the drawing board here and, and check and actually make sure. Yeah. And, you know, I like that you point that out because I think that's that's something good for our, our listeners to understand is that. And, and we talk about this in some aspect um, on a lot of our shows, which is not all of us have the right answers and, and not of us, not all of us know all of the answers, but we can find them. and the answer for one vehicle might not be the same, same answer for another vehicle. Yeah. So I, I, it's, it's good that you point that out. I I think that's an excellent thing to remember in this discussion. It's like I said, there's just, there's so many variables and it's just, our coolant works differently with each one. It's, we, we almost have to do it by just a one application at a time. (laughs) So, you know, I, I know it's, it can be a pain and everyone just wants the simple answer. But, you know, if you have that one specific question that you want to know, just, just contact the guys there at the, at the tech support, they're going to be able to help you and answer you. And they'll tell you this will work or this isn't going to work. This isn't what you're going to like for your, your vehicle or yeah, it's going to be great. So that's, that's what they're there for. You know, while we're on that kind of this topic, uh, there's another listener question. What kind of seals are you compatible with? But are there any engine seals or any products that you specifically say no, you can't use it in? Is there anything like that? I know you you know kind of alluded to on that Jaguar head gasket just because of its. But I'm not going to say 
that doesn't mean if you've got an E-Type, don't use it. Right. Because the the quality of aftermarket parts for British cars, and that that's my daily job. Yeah. Varies extensively on what you, <laughs> what you get and where they were made. So. <laughs> yeah. And, and those kind of cars seem to be, I don't want to say more troublesome, but... The ones more in you're accurate. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're more in question with their types of gaskets and seals, but usually anything like from muscle car era up, anything like that, we, we usually don't see any issues. And it sounds like a lot of guys are there. Are a lot of available aftermarket parts, like updated gaskets and and stuff for those um, European cars there that you guys typically work on. There are there are a lot of them, but like I said, the quality varies depending whether you're buying for price or whatever. Sure. Uh, sure. Most recent restoration pro- project I o- did, I wanted official Lucas parts, which I don't get from most of the known American suppliers. I always order them out of England, mm-hmm. pay a bucket of money for them, but you can tell the difference of a. English-made Lucas-labeled part and a Chinese-made Lucas-labeled part. And I think that's a lot of the difference in, say, the electrical components. And I think the same thing can be said for the gaskets and things like that. But what I'm gathering, and like I said, some of these questions are coming from really diehard people and, you know, that, you know, some of these people will drive their Model Ts to work. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that, John. one One of these listeners operates a classic car business. You know, it's all vintage 50s era Rolls Royces and Jaguars and things like that. So, you know, they're they're a a little bit different than what a lot of the market is. Kind of you and I talked before the show about SEMA. SEMA is all street rod stuff. And I think what we're looking at is if you're 55 or newer and the Chevrolet V8 engine technology and beyond, Mm. you're probably safe with it as long as you're using quality rebuild parts and things like that when you're getting into you know maybe i was going to say a franklin but that doesn't make sense because it's uh yeah franklin there. is an air-cooled product <laughs> yeah yeah how how well would evans how well say, would say evans like, work in a uh, 1928 franklin <laughs> saying like if you if you're if you're thinking of using evans and like Derek's marmon you might want to call their their tech guys like chris can't know it all sitting here at, you know we didn't make him go back into the office tonight. He's an hour ahead of us in this recording, so I doubt if he has the full database in front of him. Also, so no, and it's again, it's it's almost it's a application by application, and you know, I was talking with um, the tech guy and about he was telling me some of these European cars and and whatnot were even designed. The cooling systems were designed for different regions of the world too so you know different uh, one may have a couple bypass hoses uh for for heating the carburetors and stuff like that because they run uh, too cool and they would need to heat them up where you know other applications there, it's a more free-flowing system obviously the stuff's going to work great in that kind of applications there it's there's so many just different variables and applications and you know it's i'd like to give a simple answer it's just not as simple as that (laughs) you know it's tough but yeah i would say like like you were saying the 55s and on and stuff you don't really have to worry as much and gaskets were much different machining was much different and you know when you get into a lot of the pre-war cars and stuff that's when it starts getting tricky i i have some experience but probably not enough to really give you the the exact answer those guys are looking for so you know a quick email 
over to the tech guys. Uh, they'll answer it right away. So, okay, can we do the lightning round here? Seeing we uh, we're we're coming close to the end, I can just throw out a bunch of them, and he's got to answer them all within a second. Yeah, I, I'm uh, gonna get the sixty <laughs> second timer ready. Yeah, there you go. Uh, each each question is worth five points, and uh, by the end of the episode, you have hundred and fifty yes. points. Now, uh, <laughs> you didn't know you were on an NPR game show, did you? Uh, <laughs> no, um, I mean, so so just kind of going through a, a couple things that came to my mind quickly. Uh, you know, I'm, I, and I know I'm sure some of the uh, you know chemical formulation of the products proprietary, but there is you know obviously one of the things listed on MSDS sheets. Um, you do have a small amount of sodium nitrate uh, in the product, which of course is you know steel iron corrosion inhibiting reasons to have that in there. You know, sodium nitrate has been tested to inhibit corrosion, so that was something that you know you talk about products that are in there, one of the things that help this product kind of fight off that corro- those corrosion issues. Uh, one of the things I did want to step back to with your question, or when you were talking about the heating uh, process that I didn't get to, mm-hmm. to jump in on, you know, the pressurized cooling systems, things like that. Yeah, I mean, it kind of the average, at least uh, that most companies discuss, uh, you know, you're, you're typically running 12, 14 pound systems anymore. Yeah. Let's say typically a pressurized system, you know, you're not going to boil over 50, 50 antifreeze, uh, you know, water mix till probably somewhere between two forty to 50 in a pressurized system. You know, you're coming up from that two twelve boiling point, probably about 40 degrees Mm -hmm. on average, let's call it. I mean, and then you you know as you say you know the benefit to this is that it doesn't it does not go to a, a gaseous state it does not turn into steam right but you know I mean I guess my question is and and I'm not trying to like trick you into something here or anything like that but I mean when you get over an engine running over 250 degrees to a point where a modern system's gonna going to you know turn to steam and things like that unless you have some other issue you're running low on coolant or you know something like that i mean you're getting to that point where you're going to be doing damage no matter what um you know 250 plus degrees is is pretty hard i mean it even you know i mean your oil thins out you're going to get a lot of of hard things yeah i'm just kind of curious i mean is it you know is that just kind of you know you guys are are more just saying you know if you ever do reach to that point this product is going to be better in those situations i mean that that's kind of what i'm getting and and feeling from you yeah in those situations definitely we have you know obviously i'll just throw out like hot rods and stuff these guys build these hot rods and you know they tend to run hot or some of them can definitely run hot and everybody has a mindset i need it to run cooler i need it to run cooler and it's like yeah i get that you know we've been using water for in our cooling systems probably for over a hundred years, right? It's, it's a hundred year old mindset that we're trying to break. And we're always trying to keep it under 200 degrees because we're afraid of the water boiling at, at 212. And, and, and like you said, with pressurized system and, and antifreeze mix, they're 240 ish or so. But in most cases you, with our coolant, it's, you don't see a, that drastic increase in, in temperatures. You know, it, it, I've seen like five, eight, degrees sometimes 10 degrees hotter sometimes it stays the same if your system's operating properly um you know it's not gonna 
increase attempts by that much. Everyone thinks, well, 375, there's no way uh, my my motor's going to should run that high. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's not going to, you know what I mean? Unless you have something severely wrong with your, your vehicle. You know, the thing of it is when these guys get stuck at a stoplight uh, for a long period of time, whether it's like, or even parades and it's, it's really hot out. If it raises that, that, that couple degrees, that can make a big difference with water, right? Because that could boil your water. But with our stuff, is 10 degrees, is the metals really going to see that much of a, you know, drastic increase with 10 degrees as long as that coolant is still staying liquid and doing its job, transferring heat, usually not that big of a deal. Um, I, I totally get what you're saying, too, with oils. Yeah, I mean, you have to know what you're running, right? And using kind of a cheap oils and stuff, it's that's one thing to keep in mind if you are running at those high temperatures. But um, in most cases, most of our people that write in or call in or anything, we're not seeing those kind of temps, you know, uh, on average, you know, you could see 220, 230, sometimes even 240, but it's very rarely do we have ever have anybody say, oh, your stuff made my, my car run 275 degrees and, you know, everything melted down and stuff. And one thing I, I do say, you know, this is changing the subject here, but I, I know you guys are more car, but in the power sports side of the world, um, you know, this just, you have to have compatible components that can, that can handle the heat, right? So I, I tell the guys that are racing and putting these things through extreme conditions that you want to eliminate any risk of anything failing. So get rid of those plastic water pump impellers that the manufacturers install. You know, they probably do it to save costs and, and weight and whatever, but update it to aluminum impellers, uh, eliminate any plastics, put good hoses on, go to silicone hoses that can handle heat and, and run good oils and you know these guys. These guys can see some really extreme temperatures in some of these races, and and not run into any issues. So the the coolant's doing its job. It's staying in in the engine, in the system, continuing to flow. It's you know it's it's not building that much excessive heat where it's melting everything down. That's the thing. I, I don't know if that makes sense or not to you guys, but. No, no, I think it's a you know I think it's a good answer, and and like you said before too, it's it's also case by case basis in a lot of situations, and and obviously you know coming from the antique car world, you know I mean there's there's a lot of you know whether or not this is really the best product is is a question, and and it's probably a question for each owner of their antique car whether it works right in it or not. Most of my other questions, and John, you can I don't know if we want to get into it is obviously. Um, long-term storage questions, but I think you guys, I, I'm trying to remember, I, I didn't write this down. You guys have been around Evans for, is it like 10, 15 years, something like that? I I don't remember how long the company has been around. It's kind of a weird situation, but the company started back in like the late 80s. It, the company really didn't form until 2009 though. Uh, that's when they put together like a marketing program and uh, distribution and, and really all that kind of stuff. So it's the product's been around for a while, but it really didn't start till 09. And, you know, myself, I've, I've been using this stuff since 07. Um, I got turned on to it from a friend from the dirt biking world who's actually using it in his garbage trucks at the time. He was sampling it in his garbage trucks, but he had a dirt bike that was overheating nonstop at idle trail rides, everything. And he tried to cool it in there and it solved it. And I was like, wow, that's, 
that's awesome because we always have these problems. So so it's it's definitely been around for a while. It's just been kind of like a, a kept secret. And, you know, it's just one of those things. It, it's getting definitely more well-known. And that has a lot to do with marketing, the events that we attend, um, you know, just everything that we've been doing and trying to get it out there. So, mm-hmm. but again, so many questions on the product yeah. and so many concerns with it, you know, but it's like, it's tough. I try to stay out of the, the whole social media stuff. If I can, I do a lot of posts and I do a lot of this and that and answer people's questions, but you get in on these group chats and somebody says, Oh, there's something wrong with my car. It's running super hot. And somebody will say, well, use Evans. That'll fix it. It's like, <laughs> it's like, well, it's going to fix it, but it's not going to fix it. Right. You need to fix the actual problem. First, right. You know right. What, what is I mean? the root so, of the problem? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Cause the coolant, yes, it, it will stop it from boiling over. But again, you're not going to see these drastic increases in temperature. You know what I mean? And unless, unless something's wrong with the system itself. So, you know, you, you'll just see, you could potentially see five to 10 degrees warmer on most cases. Right. Yeah. And see, so, you know, my questions, a lot of my questions or a few of my last questions, let's call it relate to the more long-term storage, especially, you know, being in the museum world where we may shut a car down and, you know, it doesn't operate again for five years or 10 years. You know, it just, just depends um, on how, you know, what we're doing, things like that kind of, standard conservation practice right now and and oddly it it varies museum by museum again this is one of those you know it what works best for others i'm a proponent of drain and dry the systems uh so any car that we know that's going to sit for years on end is a a drain and dry situation other than you know hydraulic systems uh, brake systems automatic transmissions things like that sure. yeah but i i guess you yeah. know and, and maybe my questions are more again for your technical guys your your chemists you know, because my my curiosity would be in you guys have a lot of anti corrosion products. You know, w- suspended within the solution. Have there been studies done on as this sits over time? If this were in a a cooling system that was not running and actually seeing this, uh, you know, the product actually the solution being continuously moved through it. Is there going to be settling of the solution? Are some of these, you know, the the anti-corrosion products within it going to fall out of solution and settle? Are you going to get a breakdown of the material? You know, and what are the long-term effects of that if you're not actually, if you don't have this in a cooling system that is operated at least once, twice a year, but you're looking at something much more long-term? The fact that, and, you know, I know it's, it's not drawing in a lot of moisture, but you know the the main chemical within the coolant is ethylene glycol, which is of course uh, you know hygroscopic. So it, as we talked about earlier, it'll attract moisture into a system, but obviously a very at a very at a very sure. small rate. I mean, you're not looking at it sucking in a gallon over a year, but just a lot of those more technical, no, probably no. chemist related questions that you're probably sitting here going, I have no answer to this. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, with my time here and, and just, you know, reading write-ups and stuff like that, I haven't seen any cases of it 
separating, breaking down, anything like that. Uh, we do offer a sampling program for people. Uh, I mean, anyone can take advantage of it if they feel, you know, if they've had, got a car that's been sitting for 10 years or 15 years with the product in it and they just say, hey, you know, I wonder if this stuff's still good. Just contact us. We send you a sample bottle, shipping label. You put a sample of it in there and we send it out to our lab, test it and come back to you with results on it. Or if the same thing, if you think you contaminated it by accident with something or, or whatever, you know, we can test it. And uh, if it has failed, they can break it down and even tell you, okay, this is, this is what's causing it to fail. And it's a pretty cool program that they have. Use it, utilize it. Why not? It's, you know, free. So can't hurt <laughs> in the long-term storage. Again, the product will typically uh, last the life of an engine. You know, that's why a lot of these collectors are starting to use it. And most of their cars don't run. Uh, they just sit there, do nothing, just look good. That's about it. So it's, uh, that's why they're, they like that fact of the coolant. It's okay. We don't have to worry about draining it out. We don't have to worry about flushing it on a regular basis. Or, you know, if we want to turn the key and just fire it up and go one day, we can without having to, to worry about anything. And, yeah, and I mean, it may be, uh, I'm actually, you know, thinking it may be a, a worthwhile, um, you know, test to put it in in some vehicles and and do some, I, and that's the interesting thing, and, and John can kind of talk to this too, I'm sure, you know, there's, there's a few of us in the automotive museum world that conservation of vehicles has not been, of, of let's call it uh, motorized vehicles, automobiles, uh, things like that is not necessarily something that's been looked into heavily uh, in the proper way to preserve these vehicles long-term. And there's a lot of us uh, in the field right now trying to do tests and different things with different products and and see what happens. And I think, you know, anytime you're talking about something that has to be in long-term storage, of course, the testing of the products has to be over long-term. So, um, you know, I think there's still right. a lot that we can learn and, uh, you know, products like this are something that we can start kind of doing bigger, uh, deeper dives into. And, and as I say, that's why I'm kind of on the chemistry side of things, picking, picking your brain and, um, you know, trying to kind of think yeah. about how, how this product would last over, you know, a long period of time of just sitting rather than being actually circulated through a system. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> It's uh, we we always kind of joke about it, but the best application is for somebody that just sits. <laughs> kind of goes for that whole thing. Okay, yeah. So I have the coolant. I can let the car sit, or you know, it's it could sit for the rest of its life, or you know, I want to run this thing on a regular basis, right? And if they're fine with the fact that it may run five degrees, ten degrees warmer, you know, and or whatever, a little bit hotter, but they're having that long term effects of the coolant with the the no corrosion then you know that's kind of a a factor that they overcome say you know what i'm getting all this protection and preservation okay i'm fine with it running a few degrees warmer if that's the case you know there's uh definitely a couple selling features i guess to the coolant but in most cases most people like it for the long-term preservation of of its you know, benefits, I guess. Did you have any more questions there, Derek? If not, I've got one final one that I'm going to ask. And, uh, we're... yeah, I think I, I think I can, uh, reserve more questions. Chris and, and the, the, uh, tech guys at, at Evans. So say when Chris comes and visits you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Come up to the Corvette. 
I'll add it to the list now. I have to. Yeah. <laughs> and um, let me see. I'm trying to do a little pun here, but before we dispose of this episode, how do you dispose of Evans when I'm, you know, want to flush the system or change or get rid of it? Do I dispose of it as I do normal antifreeze? Do I dump it down the drain? Do I, can I take it to a recycler and it has a big, you know, 100-gallon thing that you dump antifreeze in? Am I allowed to dump it into there? Or how do I get rid of your product? I just dispose of it just like a regular antifreeze. Same same goes along with the prep fluid as well. So the uh, the prep fluid does contain some of the same properties as the coolant. So you want to dispose of that just like you would regular antifreeze. Okay. And in case anybody has a question on it, a lot of people do ask, you know, is it going to attract, is it sweet? Is it going to attract animals? Are they going to drink it and stuff? And it's like, well, potentially they could. We do put bitterance in it. Um, so it kind of deters them from that because it is still harmful. You know, it's ethylene glycol and still harmful. You don't want to drink it if, <laughs> if you don't have to. I know we've all gotten a mouthful of it before. <laughs> that was like the, actually the final question, the pet the pet safe one. So you... you uh, pet safe? Cool. You uh, covered that and so I don't make it confusing. It is not pet safe. Don't feed it to your pets. No. No. Don't no. even feed no. it to your neighbor's <laughs> pets. <laughs> <laughs> That's so with sure. that, I think we're going to wrap up this episode. Uh, it's been great having Chris visit us. It's um, I know we could probably go another half hour or 40 minutes. No, I'm sure. I, hopefully it all made sense. It makes sense in my head, but sometimes it doesn't come out. No, <laughs> I'll, I want I'll it pretty to, so. up in editing like I usually do. You know, we, we have a lot of ums <laughs> and ahs and breathing that always disappear, so... You know, yeah, and don't worry. I mean, you you fit right into this podcast because most of us, it, it, we it makes sense in our head, but when it comes out of our mouth, it's gibberish. And you did really yeah. well because totally. Derek and I normally sound very academic when we're together without Will, so you kept it a little bit exciting. Again, we we thank you for joining us this week, and uh, uh, hopefully, we'll have Will back next week, and I think we'll cover a little bit of. Uh, his first Barrett Jackson experience and who knows what else there's a topic Derek's been wanting to get to that we might actually touch on till uh, next week. Everybody take it easy. I'm out of here. All right. Thanks Have guys. Have a good night. Just a final after show note. We forgot to mention some contact information for Evans Coolant. EvansCoolant.com if you need to find out more online. If you want to talk to any of the tech people that Chris referred to and have any more specific questions that we didn't get to, that would be tech at EvansCooling.com. You can reach them by phone also at 188-990-2665. Again, EvansCoolant.com, tech at EvansCooling.com, and by phone 888-990-2665. Two six six five. Also join us next week. Chris has gotten back to us with a little bit more information, and it'll be easier to integrate into the next episode, uh, answering some of those questions he said he needed to talk to us or talk to his tech department about. And thank you again for listening to No Driving Gloves. Any products mentioned on the podcast are not necessarily a personal endorsement by the hosts, their employers. We have these guests on, these companies on for solely your purposes of gathering any information. Use these products at your own risk. Use these products with care. Be sure to read all instructions.